Welcome to the Western Vowel podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted by the first of each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled, Dig Into the Mud to Get to the Sky. The talk was given by Karuna Fedorshak on January 11th, 2020, in Prescott, Arizona. Karuna was a singer in the musical duo Small Change, which performed Western vowel music. She authored Parenting, A Sacred Task, and was one of the editors of Sahaja magazine on Western vowel practice. Until she became a mother, she was a member of LGB, which was the first band to perform Western vowel music. Karuna Fedorshak. So dig into the mud to get to the sky. It just popped into my head that I, you know, earlier in my life when I was in college, I was, my aim was to be an archeologist. So I did a lot of digging. Uh, <laughs> I didn't even think about. Yeah. I didn't even think about the fact that I connected Funny. with this with this phrase. I didn't connect that with my training as an archaeologist. So digging the, into the mud to get to the sky. This this phrase is poetic, and it's metaphorical, and it's also an exactly an exactly practical piece of guidance on the path. So I want to I want to talk about the phrase. I want to talk about the mud, and I want to talk about the sky, and um, what that means to me. And and then I'm going to kind of take us on a little tour through some related ideas and teachings, including how we could begin to dig in the mud if we're interested. And some of you here are already engaged in that, but you know, it never hurts to go over the basics. And then I want to end with, I'll end with playing you a song, which this phrase, dig into the mud to get to the sky, is actually the refrain of a song. I didn't add any kind of a subtitle to this because I think it's kind of, I think everybody gets the gist of this. It describes something we could call a counterintuitive, maybe even an unnatural journey into the mud or downward in order to facilitate access to the sky, that which is above, beyond, greater upward. Like it's kind of counterintuitive to go down to get up. That's the metaphor. So what is the mud? I was thinking that like on a practical, obvious way, it really is just the stuff of our lives. Like the, the mud is just what we're dealing with in our life every day. Our job, our, our families, our finances, <laughs> car repairs, <laughs> just the ordinary stuff. Relationships, of course. This family covers that. But then on a, on a deeper level, uh, and I want to dig deeper, we could say that it's, it's everything that we, that we don't know or don't want to see about ourselves. And there's a lot of that. Some of that we don't know. But some of it we do know, but we just don't want to, we don't want to see it. You know what I mean? <laughs> it shows itself, and we quickly try to. I'll speak for myself. It shows itself, and I quickly try to 
pretend it didn't happen and kind of sweep it under the rug because it doesn't fit. The reason I do that is because it doesn't fit with my the self-image that I've built of myself. I'm not a person that does that, that uses that tone of voice or behaves that way or did that thing. Everything we don't we don't know or want to see about ourselves is obviously influenced by societal norms, by our, the families we grew up in, by the religion that we may have grown up in and still you know, subscribe to, um, but also by ego and self-image, as I mentioned already. So those things are all influence what it is that we don't know and or don't want to know about ourselves. So, you know, that's like things like at one end of the spectrum, just destructive impulses, difficult emotions and situations, the nitty gritty, well, the nitty gritty of life. But the, the fact is that we can only really start where we are. If we attempt to kind of leapfrog over this level of things, what we could call the nitty gritty or the mud, it, it's going to, if, you, if you've tried to do that, it's going to kind of backfire. It's going to boomerang around. You, you, you are going to have to deal with <laughs> sooner or later, whatever it was that you didn't want to deal with. And that principle holds true even in some very simple ways, you know, we've probably seen. Like, as a parent, I remember, if you try to avoid disciplining your kid, the problem typically just gets bigger. So it's like, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I don't want to be the bad guy. And then I've got an even bigger problem on my hands because I've got a kid out of control that needs, that needs a boundary. So it's like, that's just a, that's a very, you know, um, ordinary kind of example of this principle that if we don't deal with um, what it is that we don't see and we attempt to like say in this domain of, of the spiritual path or study of the traditions and the teaching, if we attempt to just like, just engage those in a, in a mental way. I mean, obviously our mind is part of the process and we, and again, we have to start where we are, but if we just do that and don't really take, take them to heart, it's going, you know, we're not going to make much progress. Let's put it that way, in my opinion. <laughs> so there's fertile ground for growth in the mud of life. I mean, think about mud, you know, mud is like, Mud is thick and usually dark and wet, you know, <laughs> so it's, it's, it is, you know, it's a fertile medium for growth, but it can be really sticky too, like really sticky. I guess quicksand is just mud. So, you know, the, our explorations should be, should be undertaken with some caution and all, ideally, I believe, with some guidance and whether that's, whether we're talking about it just on a psychological level or whether we're talking about it psychology and spirituality guidance is pretty helpful for the sticky mud and then okay so there's mud and then there's the sky for me the sky is freedom like real freedom and innocence self-knowledge reality with a capital r Having a relationship to something that's big, bigger than, you know, bigger than our own kind of bubble is, you know, a relationship with a larger reality. Space, higher ground, even just a broader view. <laughs> I had a, I still do somewhere, I have a book that's something like 15-minute meditations for, I forget what, but one of them is just to remember to look at the sky. <laughs> it's so simple. I don't often remember it, but it does definitely change one's perspective. Just remember to look up, 
to the firmament. You say the sky is everyone and everything that's beyond ourselves, this idea of the kind of bubble that we're all in. And rightly so. I mean, it's not like there's anything wrong with that or abnormal about it. We could say the sky is, you know, this, there's this idea, and I, do, I want to talk about a little bit about Carl Jung tonight. There's this idea of integration that he, he talked about, uh, integrating this, all this material, all this mud that we, that we don't <clears throat> identify with, and integrating that with the conscious self. So the idea of integrating ourselves with a broader reality or with our conscious reality. So those were some ideas I had about the sky. I wanted to talk about Carl Jung because I, I just immediately thought of him and his work. Does everyone know who he is? He was a Swiss psychiatrist, very influential. He started off as a, I don't know if he was a student of Freud, was he? He was a student of Freud, and then they later, then they were colleagues, and then they had a, an ideological break at a certain point. Jung's pretty fascinating. He believed in doing, doing the work that he was, that he was asking of, the, of his, uh, the people he had in analysis with him. He believed in, doing, in, in having done that work himself before he would ask that of anyone else. So um, he really explored this whole idea of the underworld and, and going, going down, kind of descending for healing, <coughs> descent, healing in the descent. So the dark side of life, the underworld, we could say, personal and archetypal, is a doorway, holds the keys to real change or transformation. Um, difficult situations, as we touched on already, have, they, they have great potential for real learning. I mean, I think most of us instinctively push those away and avoid them because they're, because they're difficult. <laughs> I would rather life be pleasant. But the fact is that actually... Some of the most difficult situations I've been in have been the most edifying, shall we say, in a real way. So this, there's this idea of allowing the full spectrum of life and feelings, the dark and the light, the creative and the destructive, um, which doesn't mean you like, you know, let yourself go on a rampage and, you know, <laughs> an angry rampage and <laughs> do damage, but, but um, to to accept those things, and I, I don't mean to be glib about it because it's—I don't think it's a—I don't think that that journey is one that's um, happens overnight. But it's definitely worth <laughs> a journey worth going on. There's this great quote I meant to bring it with me that I've been revisiting a lot in the last year or so, and it's—it's a—it's from Trungpa. It's called "All-Encompassing Friendship," and uh, that's the translation of a Sanskrit word, "maitri." And it's just a couple of paragraphs in a book of quotes from him. In there, he talks about how if you're really friends with someone, you don't pick and choose the qualities that you're engaging with your friend. It would be nice if you could. But, <laughs> but you know, most of us, we do this just unconsciously. I, I like being friends with this part of you, but if you show me this part, I don't like it so much. And it's okay if you don't like it so much, but the fact is that, that all-encompassing friendship is relationship to the whole of another person. So that's a friendship that, that encompasses the creative and destructive aspects of the other person and, of course, of yourself. I love that, and I've just gotten a lot of mileage out of that. It speaks to me because, inevitably, if we become close with anyone, there, there, are, always, there are always those aspects to a relationship on both sides. And if we're just not going to 
we're just gonna, not going to be able to pretend that's not there. <laughs> or, you know, maybe that's the reason for people's serial marriages and divorces, you know, or, or the fact that people don't marry so much these days. I don't know. I'm not a sociologist, but again, it seems like worthwhile, a worthwhile consideration how, how, to, how we can have all-encompassing friendship, whether that's a, with a romantic partner or a friend or a child. So creative and destructive aspects. Whatever is buried as undesirable for us, whatever's in our shadow, the shadow, oh, I'm going to read you a, I have to read you a definition of the shadow. I think you, most people, I think, are probably familiar with the idea. But, but anyway, whatever's buried as undesirable also carries life force and creativity with it. And so we've buried, we've buried this undesirable thing, but we've also not uncommonly also buried some creativity and life force along with it. So that's, it's kind of like the price we pay, you know, for <laughs> picking, picking and choosing with ourselves, you know, what it is we like and what we don't like. And it's not like that process is so conscious. So again, I don't mean to be glib, but so the shadow, here's a definition, an unconscious aspect of the personality which the conscious ego does not identify in itself or the entirety of the unconscious, everything of which a person is not fully conscious. In short, the shadow is the unknown side. A few years back, I did a, a, a training called Landmark Education. Has anyone heard of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they, has anyone done that training? Well, they one of the things that they sort of like famously do is they draw... They draw this big circle and they kind of, they talk about, you know, they they make a little slice of it and they go like, here's what you know, you know, you know, <laughs> and then, here you know, and then there's other stuff, you know, you don't know, like, I don't know how to fly a plane, you know, that's in, that's in another slice of the pie of what I, what I know, I don't know. And then like most of the pie is what I don't know. Oh, I didn't finish reading a little bit more about the shadow because one tends to reject or remain ignorant of the least desirable desirable aspects of one's personality, the shadow is largely negative. There are, however, positive aspects that may also remain hidden in one's shadow. So again, back to the idea of kind of the, the price that we pay for burying anything. And then I mentioned already Jung's idea of integration or assimilation of the shadow. So he saw that as being a pretty big piece of work that could be done to bring that material kind of into into conscious awareness he was not really i guess he he was scientific but he was more interested in stories and visions and dreams and and like that he was pretty remarkable individual definitely worth studying if you have not done so um the man who was my teacher lee loswick and i think we probably have some books of his out on the table and i hope we have this one if we don't have it out we do have have copies of it called Feast or Famine, Teachings on Mind and Emotions. And uh, I'll, I'll be sharing some material from that later. But what I was going to say right here was just that he really specialized in, in um, making this connection from the mundane to the sublime. It was his preference always to start at what he called like the dog shit level. <laughs> I mean, he really he was forever turning us back, those of us who were his students, turning us ba- our attention back to that. You know, not because more a more elevated view or other kinds of experiences aren't valid or useful, but that again, this idea that if you try to skip over that stuff, you're going to step in it. You know, so and he he really had a great way of, in my experience, 
of, of going from that level of things and taking it to the sublime, you know, when he would speak to us or when he would engage considerations with us, like, you know, he, like on this, you know, practical level, you know, he was interested in how we kept our spaces. Like, how's your living space? He might ask. <laughs> if you came to him with some other question, what's it look like? You know, <laughs> and, um, you know, what tone of voice do you use with your partner or your child or your friend? He, he came up with the use of the game of bridge for self-observation. It's just an awesome arena for that, but it's just this ordinary game of bridge. But it, it just so happens for anybody that's ever played bridge that there's all these ways to win and lose in bridge. It's like, it's just, it's a really interesting game that, you know, when, once he learned it, he was just completely taken with its um, uh, appropriateness to be used in this way, to self-observe. So just this ordinary game. And the fact is that games in general, as some of us have been noticing, can be highly revealing of our orientation toward life, you know? Like how seriously we take them. Uh, some of us were playing a game of Scrabble, uh, four of us, um, a few weeks back over the holidays. And the one friend was, she started off like just kind of jokingly saying, Every time it came around to her turn saying, you took my spot. Oh, you just took my spot, you know? <laughs> and, but she became increasingly agitated, and then she finally dropped out of the game very easily. We, we, we get down to, to how it is we operate, even just in, when playing a game, you know, where honestly nothing's really at stake, you know, um, nothing vital. Also, my teacher, Lee Laswick, had a, a form of inquiry that he recommended, which you may have heard mentioned here before. And his form of inquiry kind of riffed on, <laughs> on the classic inquiry of Ramana Maharshi, which is, who am I? You may have heard of that it's classic inquiry that you, you, know, you ask yourself. His, his form of that was, who am I kidding? <laughs> <laughs> Funny, you know, and... Pithy, but also very multi-layered. It's a lot to dig into there. Speaking of digging, so this this uh, idea of going from the mundane level to the sublime was really, like I said, was something I really appreciated in my teacher and and saw him able to do. And that that meant that you know in, in interacting with him in ordinary life, it's like he he could just use almost anything that came up to. To make a point or to, you know, our teaching lesson or to help you see, you know, a bigger, bigger view. So he typically deflated grandiose ideas and approaches in favor of a more practical level. Again, not because there aren't other levels of reality, but just that that was like a good place to start and to stay until you're done. (laughs) There's a book that I've been reading this week. It's called Training the Mind and Cultivating Loving Kindness. It's a commentary by Shoyim Trungpa, the Buddhist teacher, if any of you have heard of him. It's a commentary on the Abhidharma, which is, Abhidharma is, is, to say it really simply, is Buddhist psychology. I guess the original texts of Abhidharma are are like, they have, there's a lot of very precise um, charts and lists Someone described Abhidharma as comparable to a periodic table of experience. I actually printed you out a chart. You can can pass this around. Like, stuff like this. (laughs) If you've read much Buddhist literature, you know that there's 
they have, you know, five kinds of this and seven ones of that and eight ones of these things. And so the Abhidharma is full of these, you know, this, this many traps over here and this many ways to taint the mind, this, you know, ways to fail at meditation and whatever in this domain of Abhidharma. So that's what, that's what this book is about. But something that really, something that I wanted to talk about from this is just, just a, a point, uh, a practice that I, I found useful lately. But in here, he talks about that in Buddhism, they, there are three, the three vehicles are Hinayana, Mahayana, and Vajrayana. Those are three kind of levels of practice and three different like categories of teaching. And he says that in the Hinayana, which is where you start, that's where you tame the mind. And in the Mahayana, you train, you train the mind. So, so this is a book on training the mind. So all the chapter headings in here are slogans from the, from the Abhidharma. And the one that I am interested in is drive all blames into one. The idea behind this is that you, you take blame. So the one that you drive all the blames into is yourself. <laughs> yes. And for me, that is exactly the opposite of the usual <laughs> flow of blame yeah. in my life. <laughs> Which is that I am always looking to. I just reflexively am seeking to blame others. I mean, I don't even examine that typically. Like, I and and what I see, what I see about that is that we, what we do is we project our suffering outward. We're always looking to put that on somebody else. And if you've ever watched, you know, a couple people that you know arguing, you can see that that's happening. You're kind of like, that's just that person's. They just had that hurt. You know, and they're like making it about this other person. It's not like, you know, you never have to work things out with people. But really, a lot of it is this, is that we're reflexively looking to like deflect blame. And a piece of that that I see is that we're trying to we're trying to um, avoid experiencing our own suffering. And we want to blame somebody else for that. But it is possible to take blame. It's actually I mean, you can actually decide to do that. And um, you know, I recently had have had a, a couple of experiences of doing that. And it's just been it's, it was amazing the way it changed. It can change a situation to simply to simply take some blame, to be the first to take some blame. It's like in my mind, I'm, I'm always certain that it's the other person that needs to take the blame, make the apology, you know, whatever it is. But the fact is that maybe sometimes somebody will, and probably they have, but usually they don't. So. So it's like, if I can, then I should do that. So here's some quotes from Trumpa about this slogan of drive all blames into one from training the mind. He has other books on Abhidharma, so if you're interested in Abhidharma, you can look him up. There's one called Glimpses of Abhidharma by Trumpa. For instance, you could drive all blames into Joe Schmidt, but instead <laughs> you drive all blames into yourself. In this case, you see the possibility that aggression and neurosis is expanded if you drive your neurosis into someone else. So instead, you drive your blames into yourself, onto yourself. That's the basic point. So it's like, it's, it's like we actually increase the suffering if we attempt to deflect it. So if we can just, just take a little bit, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't even have to be the whole thing, but just let a little bit of it come back on you. I think that it can greatly, it just can greatly relieve the suffering in a situation. So a couple more things on that. 
And if you do not really absorb all the blame, but say it's not yours since you're too good and are doing so well, (laughs) this is exactly what I tell myself, then nothing is going to work. This is so because everyone is looking for someone to blame and they would like to blame you. (laughs) So, and then this, this is so great. Once you begin to do that, drive all blames into one. It's the highest and most powerful logic the most powerful incantation you can make. You can actually make the whole thing functional. You can absorb the poison. Then the rest of the situation becomes medicine. If nobody is willing to absorb the blame, it becomes a big interrelational football. It's not even tight like a good football, but filled with a lot of glue and gooey all over the outside. Everybody tries to pass it on to each other and nothing happens. Finally, the football grows bigger and bigger and bigger. Then it causes revolutions and all the rest. So drive all blames into one. Wouldn't that be the same as just taking personal responsibility? For everything. (laughs) For everything. Yeah. If if I say this is on me, it ends it and it's cleaner. Absolutely. It really seems like it makes a, immediately makes an opening for, for everybody. Like I love the way he talks about um, you absorb the poison and the rest of the situation becomes medicine because it does feel like most of the time for me the idea of accepting any blame in a situation feels like that like I'm going to just fight tooth and nail because that feels like I'm just being done to in a way that I'm determined not to be you know I'm going to come out swinging but if I can accept a little bit of that even if it isn't even if somebody looking objectively, objectively was like that wasn't really your fault you know <laughs> kind of doesn't matter, you know? And it and it goes back to this idea that whoever can do it should do it, you know? So, and that's not everybody in it, any given situation, you know? Sometimes you just know that whoever you're interacting with has a particular wound in a certain domain, especially if you know them very well. And it's like the expectation that they're going to, in, in a moment, turn that on a dime is like, that's just not reasonable. That's just not compassionate, you know? Like I said, I kind of had an experience of it, and I, and I didn't, but I didn't really have the words for it. And then I came across that slogan. And I was like, "That's what it is." Try to blame someone. Let's see. Kamanda, is that an example of finding something in yourself that maybe you didn't know before until you were able to do that? <clears throat> Turn around. Yeah, I think so. Reactivity is a re- it's a protective yes. reflex. Yes, yes. So it's a very. Um, very inbred, very yeah. deeply seated thing that we need to train ourselves to be able to do that and yeah. do that sincerely, it seems to me. That's right. Yeah. That's like, oh, I could do that. I actually have a choice about that. I could actually do that. And and when, in a couple of instances I'm thinking, when I did that, it completely changed the situation. Like it just made a, like something opened up that wasn't, that wasn't there moments before, you know? You know how it is when you're in it with somebody or in a situation and it's just it's like that Chinese puzzle thing it's just tighter and tighter and tighter you know so somehow this just you know this idea of taking of accepting some blame is just like like a breath of fresh air you know suddenly there's more room <laughs> for everybody you know well does that preclude standing up for yourself No, I don't think so. I actually think that um, 
I think you can't you can't accept blame if you if you can't stand up for yourself. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thought. Maybe there's certain times where you can't accept the blame because there's a wrongdoing that you can't do that. <sighs> yeah. I mean, I, I'm going to guess that there aren't you know there aren't any hard and fast rules and. Right. I have to say, I'm pretty sure it probably doesn't include, it doesn't preclude standing up for yourself. But, but what if one could stand up for oneself without being aggressive and, and blaming of the other? Right. What Even about that? Even though you don't take it on yourself. Yeah. yeah. If. Um, as you're speaking, I'm thinking that taking blame in a situation where, you know, you don't want to. I wouldn't want to take blame for something that I'm not responsible for or be a doormat or something. But I could take the blame for, like, my reactivity. Mm-hmm. Like, so why am, I so, why am I so reactive about that? That's right. Who am I, yeah. who am I kidding? I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. And that, and that was, I found myself willing to take responsibility for at least what I could see was my part, you know. <laughs> yes? Just... Does blame come from the ego? Is that what? I think it's. I think it's a defense. It's a defense mechanism of, of the ego. You know. For the ego. Yeah, because I think that mm-hmm. somewhere it's like if we admit any wrongdoing, it's like some kind of a little death, you know, to to ego, which is in charge of survival, <laughs> the survival of us on all levels, you know. Mm-hmm. Let's see. So I wanted to, I also wanted to talk about this other book by Lee Lozowick called Feast or Famine. He also talks in here about taming and training the mind in a little bit different way. He says that we tame, we tame the mind through self-observation, meditation, and koans. He mentions one that he that he created called Draw No Conclusions Mind, but also another koan or slogan would be Drive All Blames Into One. Um, And also instruction as to why it's a good idea to be tamed. So study, you know, he says you really have to, yeah, actually the mind can become become enrolled in the idea of, that it's a good idea to be tamed, you know. That's that's the only way it actually happens is that the the mind has to get on board with that, you know. He says in, in the book that he's often asked to define mind or ego. He came up with something which is well useful to consider. He, he says that mind is the, the quality or characteristic of being that actually creates and sustains the illusion of identification. That's just something to chew on. Another thing he says that that I have, uh, when I heard him, because I heard him say that before I read it in this book, and I kind of never have forgotten it, he says that one clear sign of a lack of management of the mind is over-talking. <laughs> that seems like a good, another really good, basic... Clarification. <clears throat> yeah, clue. Over-talking is my, my phrase, he said, talking too much is a clear sign of a lack of management of the mind. He said that practice and remembrance wears down the mind and that mind is a forgetting machine 
when it comes to practice, like spiritual practice, like anything that's going to basically kind of undermine, <laughs> undermine it. If you don't practice, you won't be successful with the yoga. A primary element of the yoga is getting to the point, the yoga meaning the practice, is getting to the point where the mind doesn't run you. You don't have to be psychologically perfect. If you can manage mind and emotions, which takes just basic maturity, that's good enough. So it's not like you have to work out all your kinks. And God knows we all have a lot of kinks. So, <laughs> so that's the good news. <laughs> also from, from this Feast or Famine book, I wanted to I wanted to consider how we begin, how do we begin to dig into the mud? And the answer I'm going to give is self-observation. There's a great book, which we always have on the book table, by a man that goes by the name Red Hawk on self-observation, which um, is a great kind of primer, you know, and has wonderful information in it. So check that out if you're interested. But this book, Teaching on Mind and Emotions, also has a fair bit about self-observation. And about this, this practice of self-observation, he says we start, you start at the grossest, grossest and most basic level. And it applies in whatever you do. So you could just notice what's your first thought when you look in the mirror in the morning. <laughs> or um, Coffee. <laughs> <laughs> what's, your, what's your first thought when something goes wrong? I found that pretty interesting to sometimes hear myself talk, you know, when something hasn't gone the way I thought it was going to go. How do you drive? You know, what, what kind of reactions are you having when you're on the road? Uh -huh. <laughs> and this, this idea that actually someone else, another student um, friend of mine, used this turn of phrase, and it's another one that I've, when, once she shared it with me, I've never forgotten it. She talked about stalking the small dissonances. And this, we kind of touched on this a little bit before, behaviors from, so I would call those behaviors from our blind side that we're quick to justify or sweep under the rug, like it never happened to keep our self-image intact. So this could be like, you know, you say something and your voice is just a little too loud <laughs> and you wonder why that was, it came out that way, you know, a little too loud and, or your tone is aggressive. Or you make a joke that's not really funny, like just little things that kind of just like you can feel it, you know, you can feel it in the space, whether you're with a group of people or it's one on one on one. And and um, this person, this friend of mine was sharing with me that she she'd found it tremendously useful to kind of like not let those things go by too quickly and try to dig a little bit into into the small distances. Like, what was that about? Like, what, you know. Why did that come out that way when I said that? Or why did I think that was a good idea to tell that joke? You know, <laughs> you know, whatever, whatever it was. So that's, I've gotten a lot of mileage out of that. Let's see. So a couple of quotes on self-observation from this book, uh, teachings on um, feast or famine, teachings on mind and emotion. Self-observation is to reveal your judgments and all the veils you use to cover yourself. It's to see yourself as you are. Change will happen. The work will take care of change. All you need to do is see yourself nakedly. Honestly. So. 
in the in the book out there by Red Hawk called Self Observation, he in he has a section called like how to do it or something, you know, how to how to do the practice. And he has four four kind of conditions of the practice of self observation, which I also love to sort of quiz myself on, you know, when I think of it. And these are like these are really radical. They're like a, they indicate the you know that the, that really doing a practice of self observation is um, this kind of out of the box of what we might what we might first think of when we think of observing ourselves. You know, like oh wow, what a jerk I am, and you know, why did I do that? <laughs> because the first one is without judgment. <laughs> so you're observing, and the condition is if you're really doing self observation, it's without judgment. And another friend of mine said, if it talks, you're not, <laughs> if it's talking, you're not self-observing. Like if, you, if there's mind chatter, you know, <laughs> about what you're observing, then you're not actually doing the practice of self-observation. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, it's not like you're going to just say, I'm going to do it and do it perfectly the first time. So without judgment, this is huge. This is huge. I mean, we judge other people, but, but we judge ourselves, you know, really like maybe first and foremost, without changing what is observed. So again, wow, this is like, there's like this primal impulse. See something that's not, you know, not in line with how you think it should be. And I'm going to fix that. You know, it's very, it's very automatic. I mean, for me as a, you know, I usually share this at some point in every talk because I really, when I was a parent, I had a lot of mud to dig, to dig in. And, and I, uh, <laughs> and I, you know, I, I did this. I, I, I was always trying to, I was always judging and trying to change what I observed, you know, and I just went at that for a long time until I finally just wore myself out. I, like, I clearly remember a time when I was just like, I just got to stop doing this. This is like, this is getting me nowhere. Like, you know, just you know, it's like it, it's mm-hmm. making me discouraged. You know, my kids don't like to see me doing that. And and it's it's just overall not really helping the situation. So it's like I, I it's not like it was I was done with doing that, but I was done with doing that on some level just once and for all. And I finally really saw that. And I was just like, this is not, you know, this business of of um, kind of beating myself up is it's and actually I realized that it was a way to not really truly see like I, I couldn't really treat truly see what was needed as long as I was engaged in this you know this loop of of like beating myself up about how I felt I was failing and meanwhile I, you know I was struggling like any parent might do and it wasn't but it was nothing it was not what I was making it you know I wasn't the worst of the worst you know <laughs> Which is a, a kind of reverse egotism, you know. I'm the worst there is, you know. <laughs> Give me a prize. <laughs> so without judgment, without changing what is observed, with relaxed attention on the body. So you're noticing, you know, you're just noticing what's what's going on in the body. Like maybe you're, you know, depending on the situation and you're in, maybe you've got maybe your stomach is upset or your head hurts or you know whatever just like noticing what's what's happening in the in the physical organism in response to the situation you're in is part of part of your observing it's kind of noticing that that piece with relaxed attention on the body is everybody familiar with this idea of self-observation is it mm-hmm. yeah okay so it's not a foreign thing without judgment without changing what is observed 
with relaxed attention on the body. And then the last one, though, with ruthless self-honesty. Mm-hmm. This goes back to that inquiry, who am I kidding? <laughs> I mean, that sounds like a cornerstone of meditation. It's not about relaxing or finding, you know, just sitting and observing the observer. Mm-hmm. That's my understanding. What's the cornerstone? What? Of, of the exact things you just listed. These, these four things. That's meditation. Sitting sitting with, you know, and, and watching there's something about me that without judging, just watching it dispassionately and being rigorously honest while I breathe and wash my body. That's you know, sitting. That's mm-hmm. easy to understand and damn hard to do. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. There are a lot of levels of, of self-observation. And again, from feast uh, or famine, Start at the gross level, the way we are in relationship, our attachments in the domains of money, food, and sex. The mud. <laughs> and then he suggests move on to observing the feelings and emotions associated with the actions. So it's like you dig down another level <laughs> when you're able, beyond just noticing your actions, then you notice the feelings and emotions associated then start to notice subtle connections and underlying motives. So it's kind of peeling an onion, you know? I mean, I think that, you know, the resistance for me to, to you know, to, to self-observation is because, I mean, if we're going to use these words, and we're, I'm using these words now, self-observation, I think it's because it's like, I have this idea that, you know, what I'm going to find out is bad new- is, is going to be bad news. You know, that I'm going to find out that I don't have basic goodness, which is something that Chilgim Trungpa talks about, that we all have basic goodness, you know. Maybe it's having been raised in a, a milieu of original sin and, <laughs> and like that. I don't know, but it's like I'm always anticipating that, you know, that's going to be bad news. But it isn't always. And even digging into the mud and uncovering what's in the shadow it's you know it's not it's not always it's not always bad news so you know that's helpful to remember and to like kind of just you know like calm yourself down you can do this you're right (laughs) (laughs) and you know also that maybe things that we that we have repressed or that we've put into the shadow we feel are unacceptable i mean the age we were at when we did that we probably couldn't like work with we couldn't integrate that stuff you know at age five you know get whatever the whatever kind of situation and emotional environment we were living in you know we just did the best we could we're probably like super creative actually the the way that that stuff gets handled you know <laughs> but as adults as adults we have you know lots of more tools and so you know it's, it's okay we can let some of that stuff up and it's uh, as I mentioned at the beginning. I think the idea of having help or guidance is really, really maybe irreplaceable if you want to engage in that process. You know, of, of um, digging in the mud. Oh yeah, oh this is really great. So um, from a feast or famine, he poses the question: How do we commit to a practice of paying attention, or to any practice for that matter? He said, he says you make a decision. He goes on to say, many of you at random times in your life have had the urge to to lie or steal or worse, but you didn't do it. 
Not because you couldn't do it or because you didn't want to do it, but because you made a decision. Lying's not just. Stealing's not just. That's all. And in spite of temptation, sometimes really strong temptation, when you could steal and know for sure you wouldn't get caught, still you don't do it anyway because you made a decision. It's exactly the same with spiritual practice. So this is kind of an example of what I was saying to you before about him starting with the mundane and taking it to the sublime. Like you can use that same, you know, if you have you had that experience? I mean, I never, you know, I don't relate so much to stealing and lying, but, um, but I think I do relate to the idea of having some sort of standard I'm not willing to bend. So that means that I've made a decision. And so I can make, I can use that same power around my spiritual practice, you know. I can commit to a practice, for instance, of self-observation. I have, I still have the song, but also we could just, uh, I don't know, we could have some discussion if anybody wants to, has anything they want to say. I guess if, I always chime, so what the hell. Yeah, go ahead and chime. If I spend all my time meditating and observing and practicing and praying um, and reading, and I don't pay my bills, I'm in the sky, but the mud is being is being ignored. Mm-hmm. Good point. And I've heard the saying that he, he's got his head in the clouds, but his feet yes. are planted on the ground. He's got it both ways. Yes. Thanks. Well said. Who else? I tried so hard to be perfect when I was little. Hmm. So, but then you get a little older and you accept that you're not. Mm-hmm. And you do, you have tendencies that aren't so great and things about you that aren't so good. And and you just kind of accept them because you've always heard about them, talked about them. And so it's kind of a backward way to appreciate a childhood negative thing. Is that kind of convoluted? Yeah. Yeah. It is kind of convoluted, but, you know, some of our situations are kind of convoluted. Yeah, I mean, you know, probably would have been better if you'd been accepted unconditionally. And appreciated way and loved and all that stuff, in yeah. In the way that a child yeah. wants to be when yeah. you had been. But in the absence of that, sounds like you made the best of it. <laughs> but, I mean, Parts of things the, work out, yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. what I was saying before, that as an adult we have, you know, we have more skills and abilities around stuff. To deal with things, did as yeah. a kid, yeah, deal with yeah. things. Yeah. Thank you. I mean seems like the things that happen to us when we're children uh, create the environment where like our shadow thrives we cover up our hurts in different ways you know like maybe by being angry or maybe by being adaptive or maybe by um, I mean in a myriad number of ways and that as we get older and you know we mature more, we have the capacity to kind of see ourselves, and we, we don't. Some, you know, there's aspects of ourselves that we don't like so much. I mean, I'm I'm speaking for myself, but I think that that's true of everybody. But to have some compassion for oneself, is kind of a key. You know, you have to work with those things. I mean, would you say that working with them just has to do with observing them, or is there more? We observe. Is that enough? Well, yeah. Is that enough for what results from that? I wonder. I mean, to me, it seems like when you observe things, like if I observe my, if I observe my um, 
impatience mm-hmm. or my fear, my insecurity or something. You know, I can trace that back to my family roots in some ways, but, you know, it just seems that way to me. Then I have to um, suffer that. I mean, to be with that, to, to acknowledge that. You know, I'd like to think of myself as being... Top-notch. <laughs> yeah. And then also, like you are saying, not beat yourself up with that. Is it, yeah, because I was thinking, is that where compassion comes in? I think without self-compassion, we're kind of dead. Yeah, work. yeah, so then, yeah. That's a good point, though, that we have to... I mean, if we're going to observe without judgment, then we will have to bear it. We have to bear what we see. Mm-hmm. It seems to me like on the spiritual path, that's the transformative element. Yeah. You know, this alchemical kind of you know, process, whatever that is, that seems so mysterious. You know, where you actually undergo some metamorphosis. It doesn't happen. I like what you're saying, but I think it's like not such a big deal. I think it's like that the moment that you do that, you dig into the mud, you you're you're in that position to be able to get to the sky right there, boom. And it's not like forever. Not like, you know, okay, done. It's a done deal. No more mud. It's like right. no, 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 no. That's right. In the very next moment there might be some mud. That's right. <laughs> a work in progress. That's the nature that's the nature of the spiritual path is that we've been invited into this. And that's to me, that's like that's the thing that's that we've been given. We've been given this opportunity to do this work. And the other thing I was thinking too is that you know, what is that specifically for me? What is my mud? And it's very specific. Mm-hmm. And the way I work with it is very particular. But if I do it in any kind of way that you've spoken about tonight, it brings a result. Like you said, and what is the result? Only you can know that. But it's also, it's also like you're saying, a work in progress. It's a work that you keep looking at and you see, you see that. You see what it is. Because you know where you want to get you know that you want that friend back. You know, what's it worth to you to do this work? Mm-hmm. To, to, to suffer consciously is what we're talking about. And maybe you don't need to see the result. Maybe you just need to keep self-observing. That's the trick. If I continue to self-observe, I'm succeeding. Mm-hmm. The trick is to continue that. Mm-hmm. Where I observe myself in suffering is my lack of attention. And just a very simple is going to the grocery store and realizing that I left my billfold at home. Or going to the gym and realizing that I left my iPod at home. Goodness, that would be awful. Um, or maybe it could be putting my coffee cup, well, not putting my coffee cup under the Keurig coffee machine. And here comes the coffee out. And there's no cup there. It's just lack of attention. If I was on attention, none of this would happen. But... It always happens in the most mundane activities of my life. If it's really, really important, um, like if it's life or death or something like that, I'm pretty good at paying attention to those kinds of things. But it's this ordinariness of my life, and I find it happening more than I would like, and I don't think I'm ready to be shipped off to some moon farm yet. <laughs> um, that's a like part. You say the coffee isn't really that important. Oh, it is important. <laughs> <laughs> but we were created this way, and I see my struggle as paying attention. I think you're. I think that this, the thing you're describing, where you, when 
when there's a lot at stake, you're right there with your attention, and then otherwise, it, you know, it's not so the good. I think that I think that's pretty common. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like when we don't think that it matters, then we got whatever. You know, <laughs> no, I think it's definitely worth asking, worth like inquiring into, digging into. Why is it that 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 stuff doesn't? See, you know, why is it that I feel that I can just let that go? You know, if in fact that's the dynamic. You know, there's this immediate thing that happens sometimes like he was describing, where you dig into the mud and then you're in the sky. Just because you're willing to dig into the mud. But I think there's also, you know, the way Jung talks about alchemy, there's like substances to be obtained in the mud Hmm. that you may, it's like like one of those um, video games where there are things along the the path that you're supposed to take. There's substances or materials, tools you're supposed to collect that you don't know what they're for yet. But sure enough, you're going to need it, you know, when you run into some other ogre later on. So um, the ability, I think the ability to dig into the mud um, and recognize things that might be useful, whether you need them right now or not, I think that's, there's value in that. Like having patience for the process, it may not immediately complete or... Yeah, because sometimes you dig into the mud and it's like you're looking at something and you you can't bear it or you don't know what to do with it or, but then sometimes it just clicks with something else at some other time. Thanks. About this like lack of attention thing. (laughs) (laughs) But it seems like acceptance has to do with like accepting those things too. Like, and gently bring yourself back to the present. That's Mm -hmm. what it is. I guess to the childhood element, my understanding was, I found this out myself the hard way, insight for me means nothing. Insight without processing it, with help, working through it, that's painful and, uh, you know, it's tough. But the A versus what A led to B in terms of how I turned out, etc., I get all of that, I I believe, um, or most of it. And there, I'm sure, are blank spots. But without processing that and working through it, you know, I found that, that just knowledge alone is, is, doesn't do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Jung felt very strongly that it was a very real possibility that in you know, exploring the shadow that you could be overtaken by shadow material. <laughs> like right. it was, there was some, you know, there was um, some caution or danger about digging in there, you know, so, yeah. Humor's good. <clears throat> yeah. Humor's good. In well, yeah, again, well, then again, the idea of like some kind of help and guidance, you know. Um, I had it. I have a couple more things, so maybe I'll do those and see if there's anything else to be said. Anybody else have a burning share, as they used to call it? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's this other book by this teacher, French teacher, Arnaud Desjardins. This was a book that was um, his. It was his last book. He's he's passed away. Called Ever Present Peace, but you know he's spe- he's speaking to the same. He's got a chapter in here called Staying in Love. He's really speaking to the same theme that we're talking on tonight, but kind of a slightly different um, angle, which I appreciated. There's the occurrence, and there's the person. We may bear some person a grudge, not only not only his or her action, and when we bear someone a grudge, we are the first victim of our error. 
I'm not speaking in favor of the person you will forgive. I'm speaking in favor of your own peace of heart. There comes a time when your conviction may be so strong that you will not waste one second anymore on cursing this person and so harm yourself. If you want you now to be happy, you must renounce bearing anyone a grudge. And if you can reverse the situation, the antidote, as the Buddhists say, is to send loving thoughts to this person, to bless him or her. It's all for your benefit. Annoyances, deceptions are our daily bread. We put ourselves at the mercy of someone who acted wrongly with us, but it, but at the end, it's we who are affected. But when will suffering end? It will end when you, you, change. <laughs> the world will go on running its course, but it will lose its power to disturb you. These affirmations really seem astonishing, but I cannot change a but I cannot change a negative emotion towards someone into love for this person. Yes, you can. By changing some inner circuits while being inspired by Buddha or the Gospels or Swami Prajnanpad's work that was an Indian man who was one of his teachers. And if one situation loses its power to upset you, the path is opened before you in order that someday no situation may disturb you interiorly anymore. I want to play you this song. So my teacher was a very prolific lyricist, also a poet. He wrote, he wrote just reams of poetry to devotional poetry to, his, to the man who, the Indian man who was his teacher. Like, there's like big fat volumes of it, four or five of them. But um, he was a prolific uh, lyric writer, too. And in his body of students, there was a, a number of musical projects that, that happened. And um, so those, the lyrics he wrote were composed um, to music. And uh, there's something like over 500 published lyrics of his. And there were more that never were. So um, there's a song called Philosophize. I think this is a... CD that has him singing on, so you'll hear his voice. Anyway, this song is called Philosophize, and the, the refrain of the song is dig into the mud to get to the sky. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I wanted to play that for you, but I'm going to read you the words first, in case you can't pick them up on here. Love is the answer to questions unasked. Kindness, the gesture to loosen the mask. Do unto to others what would be done to you. The credo of service to get us all through. And then here's the kind of chorus. Life can be easy. Life can be tough. Yeah, we have choices, but is it enough to speak in fine phrases, phrases to philosophize? Dig into the mud to get to the skies. And verse 2. Anger's the poison that always destroys. Violence, aggression, just games for small boys. But games can get deadly, as we all have seen. The heartbroken remnants of goodness gone mean. And then that refrain again. Life can be easy, life can be tough. Yeah, we have choices, but is it enough? To speak in fine phrases, to philosophize, dig into the mud to get to the skies. And then one more verse. 
Love is the answer when hate asks us why. We feel so helpless as years pass us by. Do unto others the best that you can with gentle affection and two helping hands. Life can be easy. Life can be tough. Yeah, we have choices, but is it enough to speak in fine phrases, to philosophize, dig into the mud to get to the skies? Good, huh?